be there in a second. This is John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. We've been talking over the last three weeks of Advent. Why? Why did God come? So Christmas, that's God coming to earth in the person of Jesus, but why did he do that? And so we've looked at that over the past few weeks. We looked at Jesus saying, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. We talked about what that means for us. Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world, and what that means for us. Last week, we looked at the passage in 1 John, uh, where John says, the Son of Man came to destroy the works of the devil, and we talked about what that means. This morning, we're going to look at this, the second half of that, John 10, 10. I've come that you would have life and have it to the full. Another guy translates that. He says, I've come that you would have real and eternal life, more and better life than you ever dreamed of. Real and eternal life, more and better life than you've ever dreamed of. And so that's what we want to look at this morning. This is Luke 8, starting in verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, this is, he actually returned from what we talked about last week. This is returning from the demoniac deal. A crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter's dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. So these are, there are three snapshots I want us to look at in this passage that talk about this real and eternal life, more and better life, than you've ever dreamed of. The first is this dead girl. She's a picture of real and eternal life. We said before, it would be a lot easier on all of us if our physical condition accurately reflected our spiritual condition. If if we couldn't hear, if we literally couldn't hear, it would be a lot easier. If If the eyes of our hearts were closed to God, if we were literally blind, then we could at least accurately diagnose our situation. It doesn't get us towards the solution, but at least we would know where we stand. But the problem is, most of the time, our physical condition doesn't reflect our spiritual condition at all. It doesn't. According to Ephesians 2.1, we're all dead in our trespasses. That's breaking the law and in our sin. That's missing the mark. That's what we talked about last week, missing the mark. Jesus, God has a standard and it's perfection and everywhere we don't measure up. That gap is sin. That's us missing the mark transgressions, that's us breaking the law. You lie, you cheat, you covet, you disobey, you dishonor. That's breaking the law, and we're dead in those things. Because we break the law and because we miss the mark, according to the Bible, we're dead. Now, you can disagree with the Bible. That's a bigger issue, and we can talk about that. But according to it, we're all dead 
in our trespass, in our transgressions, and we're all dead in our sin. We kind of have a tendency to compare. And so we look around and say, well, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm not Mother Teresa or Billy Graham, but I'm a lot better than those guys. And so we rank ourselves relative to other people. Or we say, you know what, I don't do any of the really bad stuff. I've never killed anybody, never robbed a bank. Yeah, I might lie a little bit, but it's really for other people's good. It's to be, you know, we do that. We justify and rationalize and compare. James 2 um, says, if you keep the whole law, yet stumble at one point. That word stumble, that almost sounds accidental, doesn't it? You stumble at just one point. You're guilty of breaking the whole thing. The whole thing. So we compare and we justify and we rationalize, but the Bible says if you just stumble in one part, you might as well have broken the whole thing. We looked at the law a few weeks ago. We said rather than seeing it as a list of rules, if we see it as a covenant, like in a marriage, and these are the terms of the agreement. If we're going to be married, this is what I'm going to do, and this is what Misty's going to do. If we break just one part of that, we've broken the whole thing. Well, I loved her and I honored her and I cherished her in sickness and in health and for better, for worse, and in richer, but then it got poor and I left. I broke the whole thing. It's all or nothing. And the same thing is true with God. It's all or nothing. You stumble in one part, you might as well have broken every one of them because it's the same to him. Not because he's a harsh taskmaster, but because it's a, it's a coherent set of, it's a coherent term of agreement. So James says that. So for all of us, if we could see that, we would look like zombies it, physically. We would be the walking dead. That's According to the Bible, that's all of us apart from Jesus. We're all walking dead people. It's hard for us to get because we don't feel dead. We feel good. We, like, we love life. You might be successful. You're doing great. You feel good. And you're not a wicked person. You really haven't killed anybody. And you haven't robbed a bank. You're really not that bad a guy. You don't even cuss very much, even when you get cut off in traffic. You're a good person. People like to be around you. You help. It's Christmas time, and you're dropping money in Santa's little Salvation Army. You're doing all of those things. And it's hard when you're doing all of those things, when you're that guy or that girl, and everybody says you're that guy and that girl. It's hard to recognize you're really just a zombie apart from Jesus. He comes to give you real, and me, real and eternal life. The solution for a dead person is not reform, it's resurrection. And what we do is reform. I don't really, we, we, we try to get better as people. And God is not interested in making you a better person. He's interested in making you a new creation. That's why he says you must be born again. That terminology was specifically chosen. Born again. We're we're born into Adam. So we're born dead in our sins and transgressions. We've got to be born again into Jesus where we can experience life and freedom. Imagine if Jesus shows up at this girl's house. He takes in Peter and James and John. He takes in the Jairus. He takes in Jairus' wife. What happened? And they're like, you know, typical 12-year-old girl. She's playing outside, and the ball rolls into the middle of the street, and she runs out there to get it, and there's a donkey flying down the road, and it not, you know, and... So this, here she is. Imagine if Jesus, to this corpse, walked over to her and said, you know, next time when you're playing, you really need to look both ways before you cross the street. Donkeys fly up and down this road. We're, we're working on a crosswalk and a speed bump. We haven't 
So until then, you just need to be careful. You need a buddy. You're your only child. You need to always play with a friend. Parents, y'all need to put a fence up around the yard. Jairus, you really should do that to keep the ball in. You don't change the behavior of a dead girl. It does, she can't. We can't. We need new life, not better behavior. Reform doesn't work for corpses. Only resurrection does. If you're cut off from Jesus, you're dead. You're walking around. People think you're a great guy or girl, but you're a zombie. And at some point, your spiritual condition will be reflected in your physical condition. It's not yet. That's God's grace. It's his mercy. He's given us a chance. So how do you fix it? Just like Jairus. He goes to Jesus, falls at his feet. That's a gesture of humility. And asks for help. That's all you have to do. In humility, that's agreeing with God. You ask for help. In humility, agreeing with God. God, I recognize I've broken the law. I recognize I've missed the mark. I recognize that I can't fix it on my own. I am dead. And my efforts to change my behavior, it's just putting makeup on a corpse. It doesn't change the fact that I am dead apart from you. And so I ask for you to come and to give me life. He always does. Every time. If you'll ask. First snapshot. Second, the sick woman. The dead girl, we see Jesus giving more in eternal life. The sick woman, we see Jesus giving, or giving real in eternal life, excuse me. And the sick woman, we see Jesus giving more and better life than we've ever dreamed of. This lady is a, she's a wreck. So she's been bleeding for 12 years. That's as long as this other girl has been alive. The Jairus' daughter has been alive. So it's Christmas of 09, rewind, Christmas of 97. 12 years. You think of all the life you've lived. Some of y'all were in junior high 12 years ago. That's a long time, all the life you've lived in the 12 years. And she's been sick for all of that time. According to Mark, Mark tells the same story in Mark 5. He says she's also broke because she spent all her money on doctors and they didn't make her better. They just made her worse. So she's broke, she's sick, and she's helpless because the people who can help her haven't helped her. They've only hurt her. And she's ritually unclean, contagiously so. Because she has this bleeding thing. Leviticus 15 is by far the nastiest chapter in the Bible. Some of you are going to flip there and start reading it right now. Go ahead. It's gross. Everything it talks about is gross. And it talks about this lady, her condition. And what it says is every, she's unclean. Everything she touches is unclean. And everybody who touches what she touches is then unclean. She's a walking plague. It doesn't say this in the Bible, but people who've studied this culture say that in certain instances, people who had diseases like hers, when they walked into public, they had to yell, unclean, 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 so everybody would get out of the way. Because if you touched her, even accidentally, then you're unclean. You've got to jump through some hoops to become clean. Again, that is her life for the last 12 years. Poor, hopeless, bleeding, Isolated. She is the, the picture of an outcast. So she's in this crowd and she works her way up to Jesus, which is incredibly bold because everybody she touched from where she was standing to Jesus is unclean. And then she grabs onto him, which makes him unclean as well. Jesus senses that power has gone out from him and so he stops the parade. 
Everybody's going with him to Jairus' house to see what he's going to do. This guy's well-respected. He's a ruler in the synagogue. His only child, his only daughter is dying. That's, you've got the emotion of that, the compassion of that, the anticipation, the curiosity. What's this guy going to do? It says they were expecting Jesus, so they knew something about him. What's he going to do? And he says, hold the parade. And he stops and says, who's touching me? Which is a pretty dumb question because everybody's touching him. And that's what Peter says. Master. Come on, everybody's pressing up against you. And he says, no, there was one that was different. I felt power go out for me. Who touched me? And this woman, who you know was trying to stay anonymous, she was trying to sneak up there, grab the tassel on his robe, and then drift back into obscurity. That was her goal. She knows, well, if he knows that I touched him, or someone touched him, he probably knows it's me. Everyone denies it, and she says... I did it, and this is why. And look what he does. Daughter. Who knows when the last time she was called daughter. Daughter, your faith has healed you. This act that looks reckless, looks selfish, looks like you've contaminated everybody you've touched, none of that is true. It was an act of faith, and that faith has healed you. Go in peace. We talked about that last week. Peace in the Bible, is a huge term. The Old Testament word is shalom, well-being in every area of life, harmony in every relationship. Go in that. Go in that harmony. Go in that well-being. She came looking to stop bleeding. That's what she wanted. Jesus gave her more and better than she ever asked or imagined. He fully restored her publicly. Everybody in that crowd heard what he said about that woman. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Ephesians 3.20 describes God as the God who does more than we could ever ask or imagine. That's a picture of that. She comes looking for a physical solution to a fit medical problem. And she gets so much more than that. God fully restores her. The, the point for us is she had to work through the crowd. The word in verse 42, it says Jesus is crushed by the crowd. That same word is used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke to describe the, um, the crowded soil in the parable of the sower. You remember that parable? There's good soil, and there's rocky soil, and there's weedy soil, and there's hard soil. The weedy soil where this good seed is planted, and it grows up, and all these weeds grow up around it, choke it out. That word choke it out is the same as this word for the crowds that are crushing Jesus. So the picture is there's this woman, and she's this little good plant, this little seed of faith in her, and she's got to work through all of these weeds. And in, and in Matthew, Mark, and Luke the, Luke, the weeds aren't wheat, aren't sin. It's deceitfulness of wealth and cares of life and worry about other things. And so she's having to work through all of that to get to Jesus and grab onto him. Everything we receive from the Lord is by grace. But sometimes you've got to take some risk. You've got to work through the weeds. That's what she did. She knew he, he can help me. And I'm going to, whatever it takes for me to get to him, that's what I'm going to do. Regardless of the consequences. Who knows what the consequences would be. Everybody she touched on the way is unclean. Maybe she figures she's got nothing else to lose because they don't want to be around her anyway. But she pushes through all of that to get to him. And for some of you, that's where you are. You've, you've got life. You're not a zombie. You've, 
you have a relationship with Jesus, your sins are forgiven, you have experienced real and eternal life. The second part, more and better than you've ever dreamed of, not so much. For some of you, the gap there, you've got to work through the weeds. You've got to be willing to push through to get to him. It requires faith, it requires risk, but you've got to be willing to do that if you want this more and better life. Third picture. The girl and the woman both were recipients. They received from the Lord. And that's, we're all in that position where that's what we, we, we have to receive. But at some point, we want, to remove, we want to move from receiving to giving. And we don't give the way Jesus does. Jesus gives life because he's the source of life. We give life because we're connected to the source of life, and he can channel that through us. But at some point, that's where we all want to get. We're not just these pools that receive from the Lord. We're more like rivers where stuff is coming in and going out. So we want to be channels. And you see with Jesus what it looks like to be a channel of this real and eternal life, a channel of this more and better life than you've ever dreamed of. And the key to it is he was not driven. He was led. He wasn't driven by the needs that were pushing against him. Again, put yourself in his situation. So here you are. Everybody knows you've got some things going on and you can make some stuff happen. And so this synagogue ruler comes. He's an important man. He comes, falls at your feet, posture of humility, says, my only daughter, she's 12, only daughter is dying. Can you help? You say yes. So you're moving in that direction. You're going to help this guy. You're going to help his daughter. And then you experience whatever he experienced to know that this other woman had been healed. Whatever it feels like to have power go out of you. I don't know what that feels like. So that happens, and he stops. Now think of, weigh the needs. Do your pro-con list, put it in your spreadsheet, whatever you do. You've got a girl who's 12, an only daughter who is dying. You've got a woman who, yeah, she's really sick, and she's a wreck, but she's lived with it for 12 years, so is another couple of hours really going to hurt? Is it really that big a deal? And she's already been healed anyway. You know that because you felt the power go out of you. So why do you stop? This is more important than this, right? Not for him. He stopped. He's not, he doesn't allow the needs that are pressing in on him to determine his agenda. And he doesn't allow the expectations of people around him. Again, the scene here is this, the work crushed he is being literally choked because there's so many people pushing in on him when he says who touched me peter says jesus everybody's touching you i mean it's he's like a rock star and all of these people are crowded around him it's not neat it's not pretty they know jairus they know what's happening with his daughter and they know what he asked and they know jesus has said we're walking in that direction there's excitement there's anticipation there's all of this stuff is going on I'm sure some are just curious. I'm sure some of the people love Jairus and love his family and love his daughter and want to see her healed. So the expectation is you're going to do this, right? She's the daughter of an important person, and he asks first. That's fair, right? Whoever asks first. But he stops to take care of this woman. Who, If they know, they know as the woman who you don't want to be around because she's going to make you unclean. And during the stopping, this girl dies. He doesn't allow any of that to drive him. None of those outside expectations. 
the expectations Jairus might have had, the expectations his disciples might have had, the crowds might have had, none of that drives him. He's led by the Holy Spirit. He's not driven by these external forces, either the needs of other people or the expectations of other people. Most of us can't say that. Most of us are driven. We're driven by need, either because some of you are super compassionate. Most of you are super guilty. That's me. We're driven by need. We see things, and some of you are motivated solely by compassion, and you just pour yourself out meeting these needs, which really looks great on the outside, but it's not good because you're being driven by need, and you're finite, and eventually you're going to burn out. Most of us, when we see need, though, it's not compassion. It's guilt that kicks in. Well, I could help, and Jesus did say if somebody wants something, you should give it to them, and it is Christmas time, and so you do something, and then you feel guilty for feeling guilty for doing something. It's, it doesn't work, but it's being driven by the needs that are coming at you. So really, the only choice, if that's you, is to somehow avoid the need altogether, which is pretty difficult to do. But that's how a lot of people live their life, arm's length from need, because if I let it too close, I'm going to feel guilty that I need to do something about it. That's being driven by need. Others are driven by expectations. It's what other people think. It's what other people want. It's what other people believe I should be or should do. Not necessarily wicked. The things that these guys were expecting of Jesus were wonderful, and he could actually do everything they expected him to do. They just couldn't set the agenda for him. The difference is being led by the Holy Spirit. If you read through Luke, especially the first four chapters, Luke bends over backwards to make it plain that everything that was happening in Jesus' life was a result of the activity of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is 100% man, 100% God, big concept, we don't have time. But he did what he did because he was filled with the Holy Spirit, not because he was 100% God. That, that, that's not for us. The 100% God part, that doesn't help us at all because we're not 100%. We're not 1% God. And so if Jesus did what he did out of his divinity, then that that's, means nothing to all of his followers because we're not divine. And so Luke, Luke is bending over backwards to say, guys, he did these things not because he was the son of God. He did these things because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Read through Mary, everyone associated with his birth, his aunt, Elizabeth, Uncle, Zachariah, Mom, Mary, Him, going into the Holy Spirit, leading Him into the wilderness, leading Him out of the wilderness, leading Him to, to make this first speech that He makes in a synagogue. All of that stuff, you see this phrase, full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit. Luke's doing all that for our sake. So we get it. Because you're not and I'm not God. But you and I do have access to the Holy Spirit. You can be led just like Jesus was led. And I can be led just like Jesus was led. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. For most of us, we keep him in the foyer. And that's where he stays forever. But if you read through, particularly Paul, you see this, this emphasis, this push. Open the other doors. Let him into the other rooms. Take your hands off the steering wheel. Let him drive. In Ephesians 5, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. In Galatians, he says, keep in step with or walk in the, in the Spirit. It all means the same thing. Be led by the Spirit. It all means the same thing. It means he's running the show. He's leading you forward. Your marching orders are coming from him, 
not from external needs, not from external expectations, other people or yours. You're getting your marching orders, your agenda from him. I'm not saying that you go and you spend three hours in the morning saying, all right, God, fill in the daytimer. It's not that at all. It's much more like your, um, like your GPS in your car. You're driving down the road. Turn right. All right, now turn left. Much more like that. Where you're doing your thing, whatever your thing is, your, your mom or your teacher or your student or your artist or your lazy, whatever it is that you're doing, you're doing that thing. You're not lazy. So you're doing that thing. And as you're doing that, as you're on the way to Jairus' house, whoa, why don't you, something happened here. Let's see what's going on. That's it. And, and the thing is, every one of you can do that. Not because you're wonderful people, although you're wonderful people, but it's because the Holy Spirit lives within you, if you're a Christian. If you're not, we can fix that too. That's what we talked about earlier. You're dead, and you ask, and He'll bring you to life. And the way He'll bring you to life is He'll give you His Spirit. Paul, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you and in me. And He'll lead you and empower you to do this. Then you won't just be someone who receives real and eternal life more and better than you've ever dreamed of. You'll be someone who can give it away. Not because it originates with you, but because you're connected to the one who is the source. Psalm 34.8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good, and blessed is the man whose refuge is in him. There's a, an element of Christianity that you have to experience. We can talk all day long, but ultimately, you have to taste and see for yourself. If you've ever tried to get someone to, to try a dish, you can, it tastes like this, and it tastes like this, and you like this, and that's in this, and you can do all of that. But it's, until they taste it, they're not going to know if it's good or not. I've made my food um, preferences known. Some people call me picky. I would say I'm discriminating and what I eat. But it, for me, it's all texture. It has nothing to do with what's actually in the food. It's what the food feels like in my mouth. If it's, it needs to be a solid or a liquid, you chew or you slurp. If it's in between, I'm out. So texture keeps me from tasting and seeing a lot of things that people say are good. Moose, no. Custard, no. Pie filling, no. Cream brulee, no, none of that stuff. None of it. I don't want it. None of it. But, according to you, it's good. I'll never know until I get over my texture problem. That's where some of you are. You have a texture problem, and you won't taste. You've got these reasons, whatever that, and they might be awesome, great reasons. But until you can get over that and actually take a bite, you're never going to know if he's good. You'll never know. You won't know because I say it. You won't know because your spouse says it. You'll only know when you taste for yourself. Jesus explicitly says, yes, you need to count the cost. You need to know what you're getting into. My challenge to you is taste and see, and if he's not good, you're no worse off than you are right now, are you? And then at least you know. But what if the things everybody's been saying are true? What if it, he really is that good? 
the abundant life does not equal the easy life. Far from it. But hard life with Jesus better than easy life without him. And the only way you'll know that is if you're willing to taste and see for yourself that he's good. Let's pray. If you're helping with um, communion, if you go ahead and come up, and if you're helping with ministry teams, if you come up as well. We're going to close with communion, and I, I want you just to see communion as a, it's an appetizer. It's an opportunity to taste and see that God is good. It's a tangible expression of the goodness of God. You want to know, this is what I've done. I've come, I've lived, I've died, I've been raised again to give you real and eternal life, life that's more and better than you've ever dreamed of. So as you take communion this morning, wherever you find yourself, if you're the dead girl, if you're the sick woman, if you're someone who maybe you kind of feel like you've got those things together, but you're not, you're not giving these things away. You're being driven by needs or expectations. Needs is really just, that's your own, that's pride, honestly, and expectations a lot of times is fear. You're, you're being driven by those things. You're not being led by the Spirit. Wherever you find yourself, my encouragement to you is as you come forward and take communion to see that as a, a tangible expression, God extending to you his goodness. Taste this, literally, taste this. Would you be willing to say yes to that this morning? We'll have ministry teams up front. They'll be more than happy to pray with you, love to pray with you about anything. If you've never said yes to Jesus, let today be the day. If you're walking around and you feel like you've got to yell, unclean, unclean, because of something going on in your life. Let us pray for you today. If you're driven and not led, let us pray for you today that the Lord would fill you with His Spirit. God, we do thank you that you're good, and I thank you that you're secure enough in your goodness to say, come and try it. You don't bully us. You don't demand. You just say, listen, come and see for yourself. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us today and this week that's kind of crazy but ultimately centered around you that we would all taste and see that you're good in Jesus name amen you guys can stand up and come forward